to episode two of the People Still Read Books podcast. I am your host, Will Leach. I've made it to episode two. I did not get replaced in the second episode. I am the producer of this show, giving me the opportunity to hang around and to yak at you. Thank you again to Linda Holmes for being our first guest. Uh, she was wonderful. I've also improved the recording. I think it's the job of all podcasts, by the way, is to have a terrible first recording and a better second recording. I hope you'll find this week's podcast a little bit better recorded. Our guest this week, our guest, my guest, Will and the producer, <laughs> who are both the same person, our guest this week, we have two, the authors of Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back, Jessica Luther and Kavitha A. Davidson. I've been a big fan of each of them for quite a long time. I even did some work with Kavitha back at Bloomberg when we were briefly uh, paid by them, by Michael Bloomberg at the same time. But this book is basically about every kind of moral dilemma that you are sort of faced with in a world where... Uh, uh, sports is um, not always having the best moral or ethical or even personal interest in mind. It is chapter by chapter. Each of them writes. Uh, they've, they've combined in some chapters. They have different sections where they write separately. But they are terrific. They are incredibly smart. This is the sort of stuff that, like in my other career, my non-book writing career, my sports writing career, I've been thinking about basically my entire life. Now, this podcast will not usually have a lot of sports people, but I love this book. Jessica and Kavitha are absolutely terrific, so I'm very excited to get to talk to them today. A uh, reminder that you can follow us this podcast on twitter i would say it's us this podcast this is as if it is not personified it's me <laughs> it's me i'm operating the feed which is probably why it doesn't get a lot of social traction because i'm bad at social media but follow us at still read books on twitter email us people still read books at gmail.com subscribe to us while you've got the opportunity we are on spotify and Apple Podcasts slash iTunes. If you'd like to get your, if you, I don't know, those are the two I use to listen to podcasts. If there's other things you'd like to get the podcast on, please email me, people still read books at gmail.com. Also, if you are an author or represent an author and would like to be on the show, please send me and your galleys, preferably, to people still read books at gmail.com. But for now, I am delighted to talk to Jessica Luther and Kavitha A. Davidson, authors of the fantastic book, Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back. I am delighted, honored, and many other complimentary words to have as my guests today, the authors of the book Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back, Jessica Luther and Kavitha A. Davidson. Hello. Thank you for coming on and joining me on the second ever People Still Right, like still people still read books. It's so early of a podcast I can't get the name right. <laughs> uh, people still read books podcast. Thank you so much. We hope people still read books. <laughs> yeah, was, thanks for having us. I told my uh, the, the the impetus of this podcast because I have a novel coming out in May, and uh, I felt like a fun way to promote would be to talk to a bunch of authors about their experiences and their books. And I sent that to uh, to my I said like, hey, I was sent to my my book editor being like, hey, look what I'm doing, look what I've got going on, and both uh, uh, and he wrote back saying. Oh my gosh, thank you for naming it that. We really need to be reminded that. And I was like, oh my gosh, your job sounds terrible right now. <laughs> I'm so oh sorry. Boy. Yes, exactly. Uh, but your book is doing well, I can tell, because I am the 857th podcast to have you on, uh, but delighted to do so. And uh, I, th I think I've told you this. I think I did a tweet when this book came out. I've had this book for a while. And uh, one of the things, 
Uh, this is something that you you two have done it better than I have, but this is something I've kind of obsessed about my entire career is the idea of um, you know the uh, the balancing of es- the escapism of sports, the diversion of sports, and the idea of yep, yeah, yeah, but you know it doesn't actually exist in. I used to be able to say it doesn't exist in a bubble. <laughs> now I have to. <laughs> uh, but uh, certainly, it still is connected to the real world a little bit. And I'm curious, uh, you know, part of this podcast I want to talk about like kind of the process of this uh were you initially did you were you did you guys come up with this idea together was it something that someone came to you about what, what was the initial concept just kind of from the get-go yeah this is such a tricky question to answer because it feels like it was three lifetimes ago that the there was the beginning of the book uh but yeah i had a friend a few years ago say sort of I mean, directly to me, but also kind of offhandedly, like, it'd be cool if you wrote a book on all the issues within sports that everyone's always grappling with. And that was sitting in my brain for a while, but I didn't really know what to do with it. It seemed so broad. And then at some point, and Kavitha and I are still like, when exactly did this happen? But uh, we became friends over Twitter years ago in the sort of women in sports find each other way, because there's only so many of us. And then we were... We, it was that time of year, like it must have been around the Super Bowl. That's what we're guessing when all those pieces come out that are like directed at women and assuming they're not sports fans, like how to survive a Super Bowl party or how to talk to your boyfriend about football. Those kind of things where they're clearly imagining the sports fan not including women at all. And we wanted to write sort of the response, the snarky response to that, um, because like I live I've been with my husband for decades now, and he doesn't care at all, really, about sports. And so we're going to write, like, the opposite version of that. And we took it to UT Press, and we had a great editor there. And he's the one that sort of massaged it into this more serious journalistic (laughs) project. (laughs) Um, Though they let us keep, you know, a little snark, I think, in there. A little snark. It was really honestly born of frustration. We were just so tired of seeing... All of these just extremely condescending pieces and just the way the media talks to women um, and talks to the, the the fan that they don't think of, that they, that they don't think looks like a sports fan. Um, and so we really were. We were we were going to just write this extremely snarky kind of response to it. And, you know, like Jessica said, there is some of that in there. But it's funny, there is a chapter that didn't actually make it into the book um, that was about um, you know, how to date or, you know, be married to or be partnered with someone who doesn't love sports. And we made it a point to interview men, women, gay, straight, like, because those, you know, relationship dynamics happen everywhere. But yeah, I mean, I think what you see with what the final product of the book is that so much of this is geared towards sports fans who don't always feel seen. And we just hope that they like us do feel seen with with this book. You know, I wrote a piece for New York Magazine a couple of years ago about uh, Daniel Murphy. I remember when Daniel Murphy mm. was traded to the Cubs, and this was a big thing because you know the Cubs are a team that uh, I think their fans and listen, I think fans of and as you talk about in your book, fans of any team have had to go some. They often have to go through some uh, to to cheer for a specific team, specifically teams with certain owners that have to jump through certain ethical hoops or mental hoops to be able to continue to do it. And I was actually talking to the writer Parker Malloy uh, about this because mm-hmm. she's a big Cubs fan. And we talked about the idea of Daniel Murphy and how if you can really separate 
separate that kind of notion. I'm curious, you know, one of the things that Jessica, you write about is that kind of wake as growing up as a Florida state fan and how that like, and, and I feel like a lot of sports fans grow up with this. What like, uh, there's like a team, maybe it's local, maybe it's your parents team. Maybe it's a friend's team. That's almost your gateway drug to sports. And I find that, Listen, we, as a St. Louis Cardinals fan, there was some pretty ugly stuff happening outside of Bush Stadium not very long ago, and and that and to be able to wrap your mind around that and realize, wait, do I still care about this? Do I still want to be a part of this? I'm not blaming the players for this, but this is a sort of association. And Jessica, I really kind of like the way you talked about that with Florida State specifically about something that that uh, you you started out some, uh, as any sports fan does emotional with an emotional connection to them and how that kind of, you know, evolves as you kind of grow up a little bit. Yeah. So my Florida state fandom is absolutely generational. I got it from my parents who both went there, but especially my father and he to this day is a huge Florida state football fan. And the story I always tell about it is that I only applied to one university for college. Like I was going to Florida state cause I wanted to watch football games and I did. And we were great when I was there, won the national championship. And I was there when we did it. I went to new Orleans for it. And it's been a journey for me <laughs> over the last, I would say I certainly seven years. Um, it was, which is wild that it's seven years back in 2013 when uh, the last time that we won the national championship, when the quarterback was Jameis Winston and it came out that he had been under investigation for sexual assault. And that was when I started writing about gendered violence in sport. It was my alma mater is the reason that I got into it. And then, yeah, I've had, it's been really hard, I will say, uh, <laughs> letting go. And I, I don't watch college football anymore. I, in this particular moment, when we are recording, I feel a lot of emotions that are negative towards college football. <laughs> um, yes. I feel very uh, almost righteous in <laughs> my anger towards it that I've had for a long time. But uh yeah, letting go of it was a really strange experience. I can't really do the small talk with my dad that we used to do all the time. He doesn't try to do it with me anymore. Uh, and I don't, I just can't do that small talk with anyone around college football. I don't know anything really about the game at this point. And it's a strange feeling when you realize that that's true after you have for, I mean, for many years in my adult life, the fall was built around the Florida State football schedule. I knew it almost by heart. And it's just a, it's so amazing how embedded in your daily identity these things become. And I didn't really, I knew that, but I didn't really recognize it until I, it wasn't that way for me anymore. Yeah, Kavitha, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on this because it does feel, and I think we're seeing this in American society in general, at a certain level, Sports fans have to make that decision of, okay, am I going to like be an adult about being sports fans or do I still want it to be frozen at the age of 15 or whatever age uh, this certain time? We I always saw this. I always talked about this when I, when I would write about uh, New York media for, for New York magazine. The, the number of like boomer sports writers who like, like convinced that sports history stopped with Mickey Mantle mm -hmm. and everything about after that was worse. <laughs> mm -hmm. And for me, I to, it seems to me, I, kind of with what Jessica's talking about, there's an arrested development. Like, maybe you can make peace with it and maybe you can't. But to me, I do feel like there's a difference between people who have tried to and who have just kind of dug their heels in and said, nope, I want it to be that was the way I want the world and sports to be the was, way it was when I was 14. And why isn't it like that anymore? 
Sure. And and to be clear, you know, this isn't something that is necessarily unique to sports, right? I mean, how many how many boomers are going to tell us about how music was when Elvis was around and that <laughs> kind of thing, right? Um but, you know, that's also part of the fun about sports is that it lets us be kids. And, you know, I think that too often we talk about athletes kind of being kids on the field because they're workers and this is a job that they do. But at the same time, it, there is something really lovely about seeing, you know, unbridled joy and enthusiasm in a way that you only really see when you were a kid and you don't have like all of the ills of the world in your mind. But at the same time, it's really hard for a lot of us to just have that unbridled joy. And that is part of what we're trying to recapture in every fan experience that we have. But at the same, you know, it's just, it's, it's really impossible for so many of us to separate that from what we're seeing happening on the field or what we know is happening off the field. And I think that that's what we're, that's what we're really trying to reconcile in this book. And there isn't a right answer. There isn't a good or a bad, you know, and I think that that's kind of one of the conclusions that we come to is that there's so many different pathways and navigations that we have to make to get there. But I mean, yeah, the arrested development part of it, again, it's part it's part of the good and in some ways part of the bad about being a sports fan. Yeah, Kavitha, I'm really glad it's one of my favorite parts of the book is the idea that while I think you both make some terrific cases on a lot of different things, you, there it doesn't feel uh, like a like a polemic. Like it feels like, you know, this there's it's really hard to come with answers on this stuff. And I'm curious because I will say that that um being that I will go back to my to my St. Louis Cardinals again because they're they're my favorite team. Um when I'm watching the games, I know that like this park w- was built by publicly funded money. Mm-hmm. And I know that the owner is a uh, is a Trump supporter. And I know that there are players on the team that uh, not only Trump supporters but even like have had uh, uh, domestic violence issues or so on uh, to be able to I'm I'm and one of the things that's really good about the book is you you bring up this stuff and but it really feels like it's an awareness thing but I'm curious Kavitha I'll start with you on this one do you feel like you you host a podcast about sports you're very involved in sports do you find and I think this can be good advice for people to when who are struggling with this do you find that you like sports like the experience of sports just as much as you did when you weren't questioning a lot of this stuff when you were younger? I mean, to be honest, I don't. But I also Mm -hmm. think that part of that is a function of being in the industry. I don't think that necessarily every conscientious sports fan feels that way. You know, and and you know this kind of better than anyone will. Like when you're in the industry in any capacity, you see how the sausage is made, right? (laughs) Um, And I think that part of what we try to do as journalists is try to rectify some of the issues and the ills that we see there. But at the same time, part of working in sports also means that even without all of the more dilemmas. To me, at least there isn't such a thing as purely watching sports for pleasure anymore, because I'm I'm not just thinking of all of the things that we write about in the book. I'm just always thinking of what the angle is, what the coverage angle is, right? Like what, how am I going to turn this into what I'm going to need to do in my job the next day? So in, in some ways that is kind of sad, but it that doesn't mean that I don't get pleasure out of, out of watching these games anymore. It just means that I can't watch them in the exact same kind of unfiltered way that I did when I was seven. Jessica, do you, do you feel the same way? I'm curious. Yeah, that's so interesting. I don't have the same sort of daily relationship to it that Kavitha does. Like, I don't have to turn stuff around all the time. But I will say, like, last summer, I was super fortunate. And I got to go to the end of the French Open and then literally walk across the street and and go to the beginning of the Women's World Cup. And I did a lot of – I did multiple pieces on on the World Cup. But 
I didn't write on the French Open because tennis is my favorite sport. And I didn't want to go there and have to do what Kavitha is talking about. I didn't want to have to think of the angle of the piece that I'm going to write on. I just wanted to watch them play tennis. And I was hyper aware of that going in, that if I if I chose to do it as a job, that it would absolutely affect my ability to have fun watching it. I will say there certainly I've given up college football, football in general. I don't I don't watch and enjoy in the same way, but I still yeah, there are times where I like just really get into watching sports. Um I was screaming the other night. My kid was already asleep when Shea Petty hit the three at the buzzer to take beat you know, for Phoenix to beat the Washington Mystics. Like I I literally stood up and screamed in my living room and I had a ball watching that. And I wasn't thinking of anything other than how amazing and that moment was and how lucky I felt that I even I was like, thank goodness I left this game on because I was gonna give up because I didn't think Phoenix was gonna come back. So I still have those pure fan moments for sure. Yeah, and I will say that it's been interesting for me in the last couple of weeks because I just moved back to New York and I've I've been quarantining at my parents. So I'm literally in my childhood bedroom right now <laughs> um, and watching the Shea Petty shot, watching the Bam out of bio block. I screamed, uh, and I've said this on a couple of podcasts, it's the sound that only sports can make you make. Like right. nothing else can generate this <laughs> Maybe sound. Maybe a spider. Maybe seeing a spider <laughs> Maybe, will make that sound for me. Perhaps. <laughs> I think it would be a couple of octaves higher, frankly, if I saw a spider. But, you know, it's this sound, it's this, it's this bellowing yell that only like the joy of sports can bring out of you and my mom I it just it just reminded me of when I was in high school and you know watching epic Yankees Red Sox series my mom ran in because she thought something was wrong she thought I fell or something and that had absolutely happened you know 15 years ago so it's been interesting for me to kind of recapture that in exactly the space that I was when I fell in love with sports yeah, and I have this struggle sometimes too. Like, uh, and th- there's a positive side to it. So I think of the women's national team in the World Cup. The idea that not just like obviously I was uh, I, I that was the team I was rooting for. I'd followed them for a while. Uh, I'd written about them uh, many times, but I was also cheering for them. But it was fun because you know in the midst of this, uh, Mike Rapinoe saying I'm not going to the fucking White House and all <laughs> and all that sort of stuff, which are frankly <laughs> things that I find myself going, oh yeah, that's totally what I would say if I were interviewed right now uh, and, ab- and about to win the World Cup. And I like to, at least I like to pretend I would have said that. And so to me, that gave like an extra little oomph to, to like, I enjoyed it more because of that. Like I enjoyed it, the, the experience, not just outside, like, wow, what an incredible shot and what an incredible play. And this team is so fun. So good. The fact that I felt like I was cheering for people who were on my side in this ongoing thing that's going on in the planet right now gave it an extra little oomph. But then I found myself being like, okay, well, does this mean I can't enjoy it as much if the Cardinals win the World Series because I know how much of a dick the owner is? And I, and, I, and that that struggle, I think, is actually kind of key to one of the th- some of the things that you're talking about in the book. And I, is, is it... Does it feel is is that a constant thing? Do you feel like you found uh, whoever wants to take this? Do you feel like you found any clarity on that? Does it feel better or, do, or does it feel worse to cheer for something that someone that that's bad? H- how have you kind of balanced that in the sports that you truly do do love? Hmm. I think on some level, I just plug my ears <laughs> uh, with the stuff that I really love. I mean, I always talk about tennis. That's my absolute favorite sport to watch. I, I deeply love tennis. And it is not perfect. There is a chapter of this book that is all about the ways in which tennis is, is a problem. And I know all of that intimately. But 
I don't I don't have like a good example of how I do it. It is it does just feel like I just kind of set it aside. I'm aware of it. And when like so when the US Open final with Naomi and Serena two years ago, uh when that went down, as soon as it started and Serena got upset at the call all of the things that I knew about Serena Williams came into my mind. It was like a flood, right? And I think that's true for a lot of people who like Serena Williams and follow even her casually, that would have been the response. So it's not that I can totally put them away. uh, But I do think there is like, I guess it's just a compartmentalization. I don't know if there's a better word. And I don't know if there's a better way to do it. I mean, I will say this book was originally titled how to love sports when they don't love you back. (laughs) And in the process of writing it, Kavitha and I really struggled with the how. There's some how in these chapters, but not in all of them because it's so individualized to each of us. We all have to draw our own lines. We all have to figure out what it is that we can't handle what we can, how we can do that. Uh, So we ended up changing the title, obviously, so that we didn't give a false impression of what we were trying to do. But The reason we changed it was because it is just that part of it is such a hard thing to say on a huge level because these issues are systemic. And anytime an individual is going up against a system, they really do have to figure out for themselves how to do that and feel comfortable with it. Yeah, and I think these things are, like Jessica said, they're not just individual from fan to fan, but they're individual decisions we make within ourselves as fans. So, you know, like you were saying, Will, I definitely do feel an extra boost when the player I'm rooting for is on my side <laughs> um, and and aligns with my politics and my worldview. And and when it comes to the other <laughs> the other side of it, when when a, a player or a team that I'm rooting for has someone on it that has these you know views that I deeply disagree with, I I just make individual decisions based on how much I love that player and how capable I am of actually compartmentalizing. You know, I the the example we we cite in the book for the Yankees is a Roldis Chapman who you know was accused of of um of beating his girlfriend, and I don't have the same emotional connection to a Roldis Chapman as I do to the Yankees at large. So it is easier for me to just have this, you know, kind of disdain every time he comes Mm -hmm. in to the ninth inning. And yet, obviously, I still want him to pitch well in the ninth inning because I want my team to win that game. It is a completely different decision and thought process that goes through my mind with Mariano Rivera, who is the reason that I am a sports fan. And I can't stress that enough. And (laughs) is, you know, it was such a just staple of my childhood and of me being a Yankees fan. And it's this obnoxious thing that every Yankee fan will tell you. Like we grew up thinking a baseball game was eight innings because of Mariano Rivera. And that is not an exaggeration. And, you know, the day of his hall of fame induction, our, you know, mutual friend, Bob Silverman wrote this great piece for the daily beast where he talked about Mo's connections to the Trump administration and to Donald Trump himself. And it like, you know, when, the baseball season began this year on opening day. It really bummed me out to see him on the White House lawn. And I that was probably the only time I've ever sincerely thought, man, stick to sports. But, um, <laughs> you know, but but still, like, I will watch games from the 90s, from the early 2000s with Mariano, and I will not think of all of that stuff that is happening right now. And I guess it's just easier for me to do that because I remember him in that time capsule in 1998 and 1999. Um but yeah, I think that it's just a really hard, there's no kind of one size fits all answer for that question. 
I do wonder if it, it puts it gives it a higher ceiling on sports. I have a friend of mine who has been a, a fan of the Atlanta Dream, and so already you know she was not a fan of Loeffler in the, the first place. So when they came out in those jerseys for Warnock, she she like I mean her fandom tripled over a already high place that it was like it actually for a team that's not that great, <laughs> like it provided like something to kind of to kind of cheer for it and that idea. And I wonder, uh, and you're right. It, I mean again. Uh, I wonder if the overarching point of not just like this conversation, but really one of the things I love the most about the book is maybe maybe the answer isn't how to love sports when they love it back. But maybe to me, the, the takeaway from this is like, you know what? You actually have to be thoughtful about sports. <laughs> and, and and to me, I think that's what is frustrating. And I think can get really frustrating in all of these kind of culture wars is going on. It's not so much that like everyone has to agree with me on everything all the time. It's just that you can't just pretend that you, sh- you shed everything when you walk into an arena or you turn on a game. And uh, sometimes there's an upside to that. And sometimes there's a downside to that. But that to me, one of the things I love the most about the book it's i mean it's legitimately like just so thoughtful about something that frankly it doesn't seem to be that a lot of people are thoughtful about maybe more uh coming soon uh but i'm curious like to me i've one of the things that's interesting now is it feels like players are so much more thoughtful about this than fans are <laughs> and and i i what i'm curious about is it, it feels I'm curious. I don't know. Uh, you guys, you've, you've talked to athletes. You've, you've, and uh, uh, whatever realm. But you know, one of the most exciting parts about this era, Mariano Rivera aside, is seeing uh, a lot of uh, of athletes really, truly kind of speaking up. Do you? I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Do you blame an athlete if they don't? Because I hear this a lot now too. The idea, like, well, someone didn't do this and someone didn't do this. Like, do you feel like athletes have a responsibility in the same way that fans have a responsibility, or do you do you think that uh, by virtue of what they do, it's somewhat different? Mm, yes and no is my answer, <laughs> which oh, right, really, good. which really fits answers. the book. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, there is a sort of selfish part of me that thinks, "Wow, what a platform they have, and they can really do so much with it in a way that." so many people cannot and i and i want to see that I, I but do they have a responsibility i don't think that i know that that is unfair of me to say that they have a responsibility uh that they're just trying to live their lives and sometimes survival is being quiet and and just doing the thing that you're good at and getting your paycheck and moving on and you know this feeling of like when the bucks didn't come out of the locker room that was amazing the wildcat strikes were amazing it was really inspirational to see all of that but they're not the ones causing the issue they're not like there's only so much that they can do certainly they can do something but they can't on their own fix this stuff and and demanding that they do that is it is unfair at the same time there is that part of me that thinks they should try because they they're going to have way more influence than so many of us and I don't I guess it's like so much in the book. Like, I don't even know how you reconcile those feelings. Like, as you guys were talking about, uh, I mean, it means a lot to me. It's been really exciting to watch the activation of Naomi Osaka in the tennis world. She's so young. Uh, but to see how being a public figure alongside Serena Williams has really made her decide to speak out and she has a shy public persona 
whether or not that's how she actually is, but certainly the public persona. And to see her just feel like this is what she's got to do. I mean, her, what was it, yesterday when she was tweeting about stick to sports and how ridiculous that is? And I was like, go on, Naomi. (laughs) Uh, And I, but that's a huge sacrifice. I mean, tennis is not, it has a long way to go on race. And who knows what kind of pushback she's actually getting within her sport when that we don't see. And that's a lot to ask of this person. So I don't know. I'm not giving you a good answer because I, I don't know what the I don't know if there is a good answer. Well, it's it's a lot to ask of 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 individual athletes. And frankly, I'd rather an athlete not say anything if if they don't want to than try and make something up because that's just going to yeah. be a disaster. Right. And, you know, I think that the other side of the other aspect to that is, you know, most of these athletes that we're talking about who we would want to speak out against things are part of marginalized groups themselves. You know, the burden has always been placed on black men and women to teach the rest of the country about these things. And that's just exhausting. So I, I, you know, emotionally, I probably do sometimes feel like, man, I wish this person would 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 say something about this, or I wish this person would take this certain stand. But it it's just, it really is just not fair. And you know, as we're talking about this, um, you know, the Marquise Pouncey thing is coming out, and and whatever about the helmets, um, you know, having Antoine Rose's name on on all all the helmets for the for the Pittsburgh Steelers, and how he's saying now he's going to make his own individual decisions going on. And that's just a reminder, though, that these athletes, no matter where they come from or what they look like or what groups that they belong to are not a monolith. And we have to accept that. Um, even if, you know, we wish the whole world thought like we do, it that's just not how it works. So, you know, it's it is, it is that that's a dilemma in itself, is kind of reconciling that intellectually, you know that this is unfair while you still want just to further your own cause and what you believe is good in the world, um, for for everyone to kind of stand up for for what you believe in. Uh two more things. Jessica, you touched on this with college football, but I, I do feel in this particular moment of a pandemic, uh, it's something that's obviously hard to, to get too much in the book because it's a book, but this moment of whether they should be playing sports at all, particularly college sports, but I think in general, the discussion of that, I think the news just broke right before we started taping that, uh, that uh, for inevitably a fan at the Chiefs game had COVID and now there's a bunch of people in quarantine because they have fans in the stands insanely. Um, but I, you know, there was a there was a quote that has been going around. Uh, generally, when sport when when we look around the world on fire right now, and the quote is generally, "Sports are a reward for a functioning society." And it feels it always feels like every time I read that, I'm like, "Yeah, they should be doing this," and that's and I get like fired up about. It. But there have been many malfunctioning societies <laughs> that sports mm-hmm. there have been many, Absolutely. many terrible things that have been going on, uh, and sports has moved forward. So I always find that kind of like a pity thing to say, and it's a way I think Sean Doolittle kind of pop- popularized it a little bit too. But I-, I think if we're waiting for like a perfect society or society that deserves sports to for there to be there's not gonna be sports. <laughs> and so I I I'm I'm curious, I guess in that kind of idea, do you agree with that statement? Do, like, do you think that sports are a reward or do you think they're just an institution of themselves that we kind of have to reckon with on our own? Yeah. Yeah. I totally feel you that on some level, I do like the pithiness of the statement, especially in this moment when people are making what I think are incredibly irresponsible decisions around uh, sports returning, especially when we talk about college sports, especially around football. I'm pretty angry about the whole thing. Honestly, I can't believe it's coming back. I can't believe that where I live in Austin, Texas, they put 20 something thousand people in the stands last weekend. That just is so wild to me. Uh, 
but yeah, you're totally right that like, uh, there's been nothing perfect about the United States and we've had sports through all of that. Uh, sports themselves are a reflection most of the time, right. Of all the things that are wrong with our society. And that's true now as much as it was 50 years ago. And that's so much of what the book is about, right. That the things that we're talking about in this book are issues within society at large. It's just sports gives you a really useful way to look at them. People will have as much as people resist having these conversations about issues within sport They'll still have it in that space. It's like a shared language where you can point to these things and and have a discussion about them. I mean, one of the reasons that I I always talk about this um, that with gendered violence, one of the places that we're willing to talk about it in the society. It's a little different now after Me Too, but uh, before Me Too was in sports because it affected the outcome of games, and so then people were willing to have a discussion about it. Uh, so I do think the idea that we would have a the right society for which we would then reward it with sports is just it's a historical as you said uh though in this moment if that's the thing that gets people to stop putting college football players <laughs> on the field then like i'll go around saying that statement as much as it, if that if that was the key that would <laughs> the magic that would make them stop doing it i would certainly say that but i think i think you're right that that sports is it's just always a reflection of the larger society which is never perfect it has a long way to go it's definitely a reflection and i interpret that statement not so much as the reality but the aspiration not sports are the reward for a functional society but sports should be the reward for a functional society and that's you know the point of that is to point to priorities and perspective um and i do want to give credit where credit is due um sean doolittle who was a phenomenal advocate for everything mm -hmm. that i think is right among athletes yeah. yes. um mm -hmm. did did popularize that statement i believe our friend jane mcmanus is the one who first said that statement oh, so shit. um you know I, but but it does just kind of Again, the aspiration of it and the hope that we'll get all of our other stuff in order before we bring back these games, I think is still is still something that that's worth that's worth pointing to and not something that we're seeing. And, um, you know, the idea that that if we have if we have limited resources, they should be first and foremost put into how to get sports back first is just totally warped, right? I mean, we're, you know, Will and Will, you and I had this conversation on Twitter a couple of hours ago about what's happening in our in our school systems across the country. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, what's gonna happen with college football testing for the rest of the students on campus? Um, you know, these are questions that we really need to answer. And I think it just we have to put sports into perspective when we're having these larger discussions. Okay, this is uh, I, I asked this, this is the last question uh, I asked this of every uh, guest, which is to say you're the second guest, and I forgot to ask Linda. So I'm starting it with you. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, All right. But uh, uh, what did it feel like? This is a, like I I'm still I'm still deep in it. My book is not coming out till May, but uh, I've written books before, and that experience the first time where I got to physically hold it, mm -hmm. and I got it. What was that like for each of you? What did you do? How did you celebrate? How did it feel when you were physically holding that in your hand? Uh, well, so Jessica got her box before I did because oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
I live close to the source. She lives in Austin, (laughs) which is where our publisher is based and all of that. And also I had been traveling. I'd moved back from LA to New York and I'd been quarantining in my parents. So I actually had to, and and our publisher also wanted us to film our unboxings and my parents went to like, like a friends for dinner or they went to church or something the day that they came. So I had to wait like a whole day actually to open that box. Um, But I remember when Jessica opened her box and the first question I asked her was, do they smell like a book? Like I just, you know, that like visceral kind of thing. That was you know, that like yeah. that book smell that you have. And then when I open mine, and I mean, you can see I have this really goofy smile on my face in the video. But you know, just to page through it to see first of all just how long it ended up being. Like you kind of hold this like kind of massive thing in your hand, and you're like, did did I do that really? And then yes, I opened a page and I just held it up to my face and I smelt it for like 30 seconds and it was phenomenal <laughs> and so satisfying. And also, I mean, every writer in every medium will tell you that there is just nothing like seeing your name in print, whether it's a newspaper or a book or whatever, it is just different. And that will never stop being exciting to me. Yeah, it's a totally wild feeling. I I think I mean, book writing is such a long process. Like even earlier this year, we read the book, what, like four different times in the editing. So many times. Yeah, so many times (laughs) in the editing process. And you just, you start to lose, you lose sight of of what the end goal is and if it's good and and all sorts of things. And then suddenly there it is. And it's beautiful. I will say, thank you, UT Press. The book itself is gorgeous. So like when you, like when I pulled back the paper in the box and the blue, the cover was there, like you could even hear my husband on the video respond like, whoa, like it's just, it's a beautiful book. And so that that night I drank tequila. That was like one thing I did. (laughs) And then the other story I tell about it is that I made my son who just turned 12, but he was 11 at the time. uh, I made him hold the book (laughs) so that he could see like, this is what mom did. uh, Because it is like, it's just, there it is, right? And then he immediately put me in my place where he was like, I would read this if I cared at all about the subject. So <laughs> I had that moment of like total elation. And then also, they, I, I think in the, in the acknowledgments, I even thank my son for grounding me, you know, putting my feedback on the ground all the time. And we had that moment with the book. So I don't know. It's just, it's like the best feeling. It doesn't feel real when you're holding it even though it's the very thing that makes it real i don't know how to say that better but it's a good feeling yeah i mean like just the idea that i'm holding your book right now like i've read it that's I'm wild that you've it. read it it's <laughs> like it's wonderful it's no i've read this i for the record for what it's worth i actually read it on kindle so i actually did i read before i physically was able to hold this in my hand so which, which to me means um uh, i feel like I, i'm uh, i'm happy to have this moment uh, uh for you the book is loving sports uh not not how to love sports no. when they don't love you back but <laughs> loving sports when they don't love you back jessica luther and Kavitha Davis in bookstores everywhere. It is a terrific book and it has been, uh, I mean, I'll say I'm smarter having talked to both of you uh, and thank you for taking your time and uh, and chatting with me. Thank you so much, Will. Will. All right, be safe. Buy the book, Loving Sports. We'll be back next week with, I think, Spencer Hall, I think is talking next week. Either way, have a good week. This is, what's the name of this podcast again? Oh, People Still Read Books. That's right. Loving Sports. They don't love you back. Bye. (laughs) 